from 2 Samuel chapter 22. We will not read the entire chapter. It's long, 51 verses. We'll look just at verses 1 through 20 and then 47 through 51, which really capture the heart of what David is saying and singing in this great song. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praise to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we come to this, your word, we pray that you would speak that we would listen, and that by your spirit you would mold and shape and fashion us, equip us for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, David wrote a lot of songs, and of all the songs that he wrote, this is arguably the greatest. It's not necessarily the most well-known, Psalm 23 maybe fits that. It's not the longest, that's Psalm 119. But this song is arguably the greatest for two reasons. First, 
It's the only song of David's, really the only song in all of the Bible, the only chapter in all the Bible that shows up twice. This song appears both in 2 Samuel 22 and it is also Psalm 18. It's duplicated, reflecting perhaps its significance for us as God's people. But secondly, this song is arguably the greatest because this is David's final climactic autobiographical summary of God's work in his life. This is the great musical memoir of Israel's greatest king. Over the last few days, I've tried to think of contemporary examples of songs like this. Songs of a king or a queen reflecting on the significance of their lives. One that came close to fitting that criteria is the song Candle in the Wind, which Elton John refitted and dedicated to Princess Diana at her funeral in 1997. But my wife reminded me of one that fits even better. It's even a better fit. She reminded me of a song about a young man from West Philadelphia where he was born and raised. It's on the playground where he spent most of his days. And then he went to live with his aunt and uncle and became the prince of a town called Bel Air. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry. You can ask anyone in their 30s and 40s and they will rap the entire song for you after our worship service is through. Goes without saying, but neither of those songs give us much by the way of redemptive insight and reflection among God's work in our lives. It's this song, David's song, that, that does that and does it powerfully. So I just want to briefly think of three, three broad themes, three broad ways, characteristics of this song that, that help us understand how David viewed his life, but also how we as God's people might view our own, how we might sing the song of our lives. First, David's song is doxological. It is doxological, meaning it is a God-centered song of praise and worship to God. You see that in the first four verses as David bursts forth in praise, in adoration for who God is and what God has done. David could have opened his song by rehearsing his resume, reminding us of his great accomplishments. David was a Renaissance man in so many ways an artist, a king, mighty in battle, loved by his peers, but David instead summarizes, reflects on his life by pointing us to his God. Look at the first uh, sentence, really, of the psalm, verses two and three. It's one long sentence. David is thorough in this sentence. He is thorough in rehearsing God's attributes and names. He actually includes in this one sentence more names for God than any other chapter in all of the Bible, any other song that he would sing. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. David's song is incredibly thorough. It's also personal. As he pours out these names of God, these attributes and characteristics of God, 
Notice he doesn't refer to God as a rock or even the rock, but my rock, my fortress, my savior. David understands that God's work in his life has not been distant but near. Not general of goodwill, but specific in acts of protection and rescue, especially during his time as king. The sentence also helps us see that David's song is celebratory. David isn't just saying true things about God in this sentence or in this song. He's not just saying true things about God. That would be a theological song. But this is a doxological song. He is celebrating true things about his God. He's celebrating. And as he says in verse four, he's saying all these things and calling out to the Lord and praying forth his song because the Lord is worthy to be praised. These three aspects of just even this opening sentence show us that David's song is not a a casual, cool, collected, theoretical nod to God's work in his life, as if, well, this is what kings of Israel should say about God. David is engaged. David is genuinely and exuberantly viewing his life and the center of his life as God and his work. And the same should be true for you and me and how we think about our lives, how we talk about our lives, how we reflect it in our behavior in our lives. The most central feature of your life and mine is not us. And it's not our career. It's not our family. It's not our homes. It's not our degrees. It's not our wealth. It's not our status. It's not our sin. It's not our good works. The most central feature of our lives is God. It is he who made us in his image. It is in him that we live and move and have being. It is he who revealed himself to us, changed our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. It's he who says that he calls us by name and we are his. It is he who sent his son Jesus to be made like us that he might go to the cross for us. It is he who now has given us his spirit and his word. It is he who is preparing a place for us for the day that we die. And so we cannot tell the story of our lives truthfully or beautifully without God being at the center and without his glory being the theme. For you and me as We were to write a song, or for most of us, probably have to commission a song, not being musicians or poets, a song about our lives, the verses would be very different. The names and places and people who we've loved and been loved by, the things that we've done and seen and experienced. But the chorus for us as God's people ought to be the same. God exalted praise for his work in us. As the hymn writer put it, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, 
and the boast of my tongue. David's song is doxological. So must ours. David's song, secondly, is dramatic. It's dramatic. It vividly portrays the severe conflicts of his life and their dramatic resolutions by God's divine power. You see this throughout verses 5 through 20. Now, at first glance, this section of David's song is probably the hardest to understand. Verses 5 through 7 are okay. Verses 5 and 6, David is describing his situation, describing his conflict. It's severe. He's, he's entangled and near death and being oppressed. Verse 7, David cries out to God in prayer for help. And then God responds, beginning in verse 8. But the way David describes God's response is really strange, isn't it? It's strange to our ears. He starts talking about thunder and lightning and smoke, fire and water, earthquakes. It's really surprising. It maybe seems bizarre a bit. What is David doing? Well, David is describing what theologians call a theophany, the special appearance of God's presence through natural phenomena. Now, you might be thinking, look, I paid pretty close attention during all this series on First and Second Samuel. I don't remember any of this kind of thing happening in the story of David's life. And you're right. It didn't. God didn't appear through theophany in any special way to David throughout his career as king, at least not externally, at least not outwardly. So what's David doing? David's doing something incredibly creative. He's an artist. He's a poet. And he is creatively employing the imagery of the Exodus in order to describe God's work in his life. He uses the imagery of the fiery pillar in verses 9 and 13, of darkness in verses 10 and 12, and most frequently of water, verses 5, 12, 16, and 17. Listen again as I read verses 16 through 20, and keep in your mind the scene from Exodus 14 of God's people having fled from Egypt with their backs to the wall of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army pursuing in might and in strength. And listen to these verses against that backdrop. Hear the echoes of Israel's experience overlaid in David's. He writes, then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The echoes of the Exodus are clear, aren't they? But why is David doing this? Is it right and fair for him to do this? And why is he doing this? Well, David is using imagery from the Exodus to to illustrate a profound and yet incredibly basic theological point. The same God that was at work in rescuing Israel is the God who is at work in rescuing David. It's so simple, but it's, 
profound. And in the midst of David's life, throughout battles and anointings, we we maybe sometimes get glimpses of God's powerful hand, but David is convinced that every battle and in every circumstance, it was God's almighty and incredible power that was at work in his life. The same God that was with Israel in power at the Red Sea was also with him in his father's pastures, with him on the battlefield with Goliath, with him when Samuel anointed him, with him as he fled from Saul, with him through fields of battle, with him by his eternal covenant promise, with him along the path of repentance, with him when his own son sought his life, with him, truly with him, as he came to worship at the tabernacle. The scope and the circumstances of God's work in Israel's life and God's work in David's life are different, but the same God is at work with the same power, with the same delight in his people. And so too in our lives, God's work is no less real, no less dramatic, no less powerful. The God of Israel's great exodus and the God of Israel's greatest king is our God also. And do we have eyes to see it? Too often we domesticate our Christian experience, believing it to be somehow just common, somehow just normal and expected. There is nothing normal about salvation. There's nothing normal about a heart of stone in rebellion and obstinance towards God becoming a heart of flesh that loves and trusts and worships God. There is nothing normal or casual or traditional about turning away from sin and towards God's paths of righteousness. There's nothing normal about declaring the glories and the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light to our children and our children's children and to friends and neighbors. That's not the product of tradition. It's not the product of normalcy. It's the product of God's spirit being at work in you and in me. Too often we underestimate what God could do in the struggles of our lives. Could he really heal this broken relationship? Could he really break this addiction? Could he really save this loved one whom their heart is so hardened? Could God really do that? And the answer from David's lips is yes. The same God at work in those mighty moments of redemptive history is at work here and now in you and in me through his word and through his spirit. God has been, is now, and will be dramatically at work in our lives in all kinds of ways. Some of you might say or feel today, maybe, maybe, but it feels like a stretch. It feels like a stretch to go from this great king and, and poet and warrior, David, to my life in all of its ordinary struggles and losses. Well, 
That's me many days too. And if it's you this morning, hang with me for one more look at this song and its closing verses, 47 through 51. Here we see David's song is not only doxological and dramatic, but it is an enduring song for us as God's people. This song is not just one that belongs to David, but it belongs to all of us. It belongs to the people of Israel by being placed in the Psalter. It belongs to us by what David's describing particularly in the last verse of his psalm. Verse 51, for 50 verses, David has been singing to God about God's work in his life. And now in this last verse, you'll notice the language changes. David's not speaking to God anymore. It's as if he's in the third person singing to us. He says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. There's incredible words and incredible promises in this last verse. One of them is the the phrase steadfast love. In Hebrew, this is the term chesed. Kids, if you practice the word chesed, you know you're saying it right when you spit while you say it. But the meaning of this word is even more fun, more powerful. Steadfast love is the English translation for the word hesed, and built into this word is all of the, the context of God's covenant relationship with us as his people, a relationship that was rooted and grounded in grace, meaning where we failed in the relationship, God would remain faithful. Where we doubted or distrusted his promises, God would continue to speak them. Where we failed to be steadfast, he would remain steadfast in love and faithfulness to us. It's a beautiful promise, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's fulfilled in a way David himself couldn't have ever imagined that the steadfast love of God would be shown in this way, God being made man, God going to the cross, God being mocked and reviled, scourged and killed in his son, Jesus Christ. This last verse alludes to Jesus in ways not just in this phrase of steadfast love, but it uses this word king. Salvation he brings to his king. The king there is dual. It's both David and Jesus. Similarly with the word anointed. And then we get to the word offspring at the very end. Who is David's offspring? It's Jesus and it's us. We are David's heirs. We are David's offspring. We who confess and believe in our mouths and with our hearts that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who came and suffered and died. And you know what? When Jesus died, those earthquakes and things that David was describing poetically, creatively, they happened. The earth quaked when Jesus died. The sky grew dark 
God's presence was there and it was crushed. God's steadfast love for us is incredible. It is dramatic. And for it, we sing forever, forever of his steadfast love. There's all kinds of songs in the Bible. First Samuel actually began with a song, Hannah's song. There's multiple songs throughout the Bible, but one climactic one that I just want to point us to briefly as we close. It's the song that John bears witness to in the book of Revelation chapter five. The song that is sung surrounding the throne of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And listen to how and why saints and angels, creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth, listen to how and why they sing to Jesus. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom, priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would Use the words of David's song and this heavenly song to center our lives upon you, to help us see the incredible, powerful, gracious way that you have drawn near in Jesus Christ, crucified, raised, exalted at the right hand of the Father and returning for us. Father, we pray that we would sing of your greatness and that we would taste of it now as we feast at your table, together as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.